There is no planet B. I stand here today humbled. You turn if you want to. I will not be lectured about sexism. The winner is Cindy. This week in history. Well, have you ever heard the name Jemima the Great? Well, if not, you're about to because she's part of the fabulous story you're going to hear tonight about the last invasion of mainland Britain. You might have thought it was the Normans back in 1066. In fact, it was a French invasion of southwest Wales, which began on Wednesday, February the 22nd, 1797, and ended about two days later. Um, the term abject failure uh, for the invasion is, is probably pretty accurate. Well, who fought off the French invasion? Legend has it a group of Welsh fisherwomen led by Jemima the Great had an important role to play. I've been looking forward to hearing this story for some time. I'm delighted to welcome to This Week in History, Dr Simon Hancock, who is the chair of the Pembrokeshire Historical Society in Wales. Hello, Simon. Welcome to uh, Tonight Life. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, greetings from Wales to <laughs> you and all your listeners. Can you give us a Welsh greeting in, in the Welsh language? Um, well, good morning is Borada, and um, we've got evening is... Um, I don't speak Welsh myself, unfortunately. Ah. They call it the language of heaven. Um, but And then Noswitha is good evening. So um, I am hoping to learn very soon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I put you right on the spot there. So take us back to 1797. Why did the French want to invade Wales? Okay, well, Britain found itself at war with revolutionary France in 1793. And actually, the two countries were more or less at war right up until the Battle of Waterloo, with a very short uh, period of peace in 1801. So both sides were sort of always looking to sort of undermine the other. And so, of course, Ireland has always been a place where the sort of French thought that they could sort of stir up prob problems for the for the English or for the British. And there was a... Um, a um, man called Theobald Wolfe Tone was one of the founding members of the Society of United Irishmen who wanted an independent Republican Ireland um, on the principles of the French Revolution. And they were lobbying for a French expeditionary force to be sent to Bantry Bay. Now, this was dispatched and it was substantial, 15,000 men in December 1796. Um, but they were going to do that in um, and also two other expeditions there was going to be one to attack Liverpool which was then later revised to to Bristol and also they were going to send one right up to the north of England to attack shipping in Newcastle. Now as so much things depending upon the weather and the weather wasn't cooperating so the the big expeditionary force in Bantry Bay couldn't land because of storms and adverse winds so they eventually limped back to 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 France to the French ports the one, the expedition to Newcastle was also cancelled, but strangely, the other one, the smaller one, was um, allowed to proceed. And this was basically heading towards Bristol, which was the second biggest port in, in the country. And um, But they couldn't, again, winds stopped them from going up the Bristol Channel. So they decided to land this expeditionary force sort of on the southwest coast of Wales, not far from uh, from Cardigan Bay. Right. Now, now these um, they were led by an Irish-American colonel called William Tate. So just tell us about him and how he came to be leading this battalion of French troops before we sort of get into the action. 
Yeah, sure. Well, William Tate was, um, we think he had family from the Wexford part of Ireland, and he was actually born in Ireland, but he became uh, a member of the American Continental Army. He served with a unit from um, South Carolina, and uh, so he fought in the American Revolutionary War, and he was intriguing in the 1790s to capture the Spanish territory of Pensacola. And uh, basically, he was accused of treason. And so he fled to France in 1795. And he had met up with Wolfe Tone and they were arguing and lobbying the French government to send this expeditionary force. And so William Tate was actually he was a colonel or they called him General Tate, and he was given command of the expedition, which landed at Carrigwasted. Um, Tate, you think he's commanding a French, he has a French command, and yet he couldn't speak French. So th that wasn't a great start. So he had to have an interpreter through French and um, Irish offices. Um, but Tate is an interesting character. He wasn't really tested because the, the um, invasion only lasted two days. And eventually he was, after the fiasco was over, he was exchanged back um, in 1798. And it seems he went back to the United States because he's recorded there um, in 1809, wow. more than a decade after this uh, invasion was over. Yeah. So he couldn't speak French to uh, the people that he had with him. But how many were there in this, this Bristol part of the invasion? And what kind of threat did they actually pose? I mean, were these guys sort of hardened fighters or, or what kind of uh, people made up this uh, expedition? Well, it was a bit of a scratch force, to be honest with you, because we reckon, well, they say 1,400 um, soldiers, but a later a later sort of count said there were 46 officers and 1,178 men, um, and about 600 of them were professional soldiers, but the rest of them were literally, well, they were a motley collection of prisoners, convicts, uh, really, they weren't a sort of military force in that sense, they were just a sort of dregs, and they called them the Légion de Noir, because of course they wore captured British uniforms, which had been dyed black or dark brown so this this was not a substantial force and, and um, even if it had been substantial they certainly weren't that well qualified if they'd sort of been what, hauled out of prison and offered well something in return for taking part in the expedition that's right but and again this small you know if you're launching a an invasion upon a foreign shore 1400 people is not a big it's not a big force but they were Military discipline was non-existent among these 800, although as we have to say that the, there was a professional element to the expedition. There were 600 who were um, proper French soldiers. And in fact, the British commander, Lord Cordeaux, did say that he saw them and these Grenadiers, the French Grenadiers, were all over six foot and as fine a body of men as I have set eyes on. So there were professional elements, but a lot of them, most of them were not sort of they were convicts and um, ex-prisoners and, and stuff like that. So uh, you couldn't really expect much of them in combat. No. Uh, Dr. Simon Hancock is with you. He's chair of the Pembrokeshire Historical Association. He's joining you from Wales tonight to tell you the story of the Fishguard invasion, which was the last invasion of mainland Britain. Uh, it took place in 1797. So the plan was to land in Bristol and actually destroy it, wasn't it? That, that actually seems fairly ambitious, uh, the weather notwithstanding. 
Well, to be honest, Bristol was the second biggest um, port in the country after London, and it was vital to the British economy because, of course, it was trading with um, the USA, it was trading and uh, with the Caribbean. So the thought of how to think that a force of 1400 could actually take that city is just unbelievable. It was uh, not at all realistic in terms of military planning. All right, so they head there nonetheless. The wind doesn't work, the weather doesn't work, and they uh, they head to Cardigan Bay. I think Fishguard is at the bottom of Cardigan Bay, isn't it? Sort of at the the southerly edge of it. Yeah, yeah. Fishguard is a Fishguard is a port on the north coast of Pembrokeshire, to the south of uh, Cardigan Bay. Um, it's well was then a relatively small small sort of community. Um, but of course, it didn't have much defences. There was a fort at Fishguard, which was built during the war, of, the US War of Independence. But it wouldn't have posed much of a difficulty to the French, the four French ships that were carrying this expeditionary force, because of course it only had three cannonballs. So it wouldn't have done much harm <laughs> to, if the French ships had attacked it. Although they didn't, they sort of, they were sort of, they fired a blank shot, and that was sufficient to um, cause the French ships to look for a. A sort of a, a different landing place. Yeah. And so where did they land then? Well, they laf- landed at a place called Carrigwasted, which is literally three miles southwest of, of the town of, of Fishguard itself. And um, so they landed there on the 22nd of February, uh, 1797. And um, they tried to put their, their sort of army ashore, Carrigwasted Point. Um, and did the ships stay, stick around to see what was going on? Did they, they just uh, rack off? Um, yeah, well, the four ships, you're right, they didn't hang on. They were commanded uh, by uh, uh, Joseph Castagnier, and they were four warships. They were uh, uh, frigates, the Vengeance, the Resistance, Constance, and there was a lugger called the Vartour. But they didn't hang on, and they, they went back. So you imagine depositing a, a, an invasion force of 1,400 men on a hostile shore without hope of reinforcement. I mean, how on earth anyone could expect such a scratch force to to achieve anything? It's unbelievable, isn't it? So it was certainly not a sort of, uh, they, to say, it would be polite to say they didn't really think it through. <laughs> and, and by this point, they're so far away from Bristol, which was their target anyway, that they've, they've got no hope of making it there. So they had everyone landed on the beach, I think, by about 2am on February the 23rd. So you've got your 1,400 people on the beach now. Some of the troops, you know, were professional, as you say, and, and did what they were meant to. Um, but is it right that quite a few of them, particularly the uh, the convict element, thought, well, look, we'll just go see whatever we can, we can find and, and have some fun? Yeah, I don't think the French force was actually had much in terms of its own sort of food supply. So they would have to have like gathered what they could and live off the land and do a lot of farmhouses and stuff. So they were soon ransacking those and um, breaking into houses and farmhouses and trying to steal and and, uh, get whatever they could. So it was it was sort of um, there were no sort of logistics to this expedition at all. They just had to live off whatever they could find. Now, is it right that one group of these broke into the local church and then lit fires using the Bible and burnt the pews? Apparently, they broke into St Gwyndaf's church in Flanunda and they used the Bible for kindling to light fires and also they burnt and smashed up the pews. So obviously, you know, that was probably um, 
that's because they were there must have been cold it was a february it was a february day but that was obviously seen as a, an act of sacrilege which certainly didn't endure in endear the french invaders to the local population yeah. and i understand a portuguese ship had run aground nearby um, just a couple of weeks before and there had been a lot of alcohol on board did some of the soldiers get their hands on that too We've got the most amazing coastline in Pembrokeshire. It's over 180 miles long with some of the finest beaches in the world. And um, you can imagine that being a coastal county surrounded on three sides by sea, the Bristol Channel to the south and uh, the Irish Sea between us and the Emerald Isle, there have been thousands of shipwrecks over the years. And it just so happened that just before the invasion in February 1797, a Portuguese ship carrying wine had been wrecked on the coast. And of course, this was a bit of a, a bonanza for local people because they could sort of rob. And so it meant that many of the local farms and cottages were well stocked with Portuguese wine, which, of course, the um, the sort of convict element of the of the expedition had, had uh, must have been delighted to see this. And they soon got drunk and military discipline was bad before. Well, it just completely fell apart. So you've got basically the convicts sort of at farmhouses across the district sort of lying around drunk, obviously not too much of a threat. Uh, yeah, I don't think that uh, there would have been any sort of, um, they certainly weren't going to go on the, the on the offensive because the, 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 the many people, some of them had deserted, many of them had got drunk. And so it was just, uh, it, it didn't have a promising start, but it soon became a complete <laughs> fiasco. Well, so how did the locals respond? I mean, had there been preparations in case of a, a French invasion? Well, the French thought that when they landed in in Wales, they would be greeted as sort of liberators. You know, they're the Welsh peasants um, overthrowing, getting, re- removing the yoke of, of sort of tyranny from them. Well, if they expected thousands of local people to join them, then, you know, they were sorely mis- mistaken because, in fact, there were skirmishes. There were skirmishes and there were fatalities on both sides. Um, people, locals taking pot shots at some of the French um, pickets and strang- uh, stragglers. So there were about four deaths on the French side and a couple on the Welsh side. So it was one of hostility, certainly wasn't one of being welcomed as liberators and um, to uh, to, you know, bring them freedom. They certainly weren't seen in that way. So was there a formal response, a regiment perhaps that was raised and went out to um, to tackle the French? Yeah, well, when the war broke out in 1793, there was a, a, a national movement for people to like join militias and volunteer regiments. And so in the one had been founded in 1794, uh, com- commanded by um, a local landowner called William Knox, and so there was a small, they call them the Fishguard Fencibles. So they were basically just local men, probably armed with scythes and pitchforks and stuff like that. Not really an ancient antiquated musket. So that was a sort of one scratch force that was available. But the force that confronted the French was itself a bit of a, a, a ragamuffin force. There were 150 sailors from the Royal Navy that were in Milford Haven and they were carrying two cannons to face the French, which they were carrying on carts. So altogether, the British force, later commanded by Lord Corder, probably only mustered six or 700 men. And remember, there were 1,400 French, so they would have been sort of outnumbered at least uh, two to one. But, you know, we had the French landing early in the morning of the 23rd, but by nightfall, the same 
today. They're considering surrender, and a couple of them went and found Lord Cawdor, um, I think maybe in the pub. But what, what, so what, what did they say to him when they found him? Well, initially, the French wanted to um, negotiate a, uh, a, a negotiated surrender. But of course, Lord Cawdor was having nothing, none of that. And he insisted on sort of unconditional surrender. So they were, the French had established their sort of headquarters at Trahowell Farm, where uh, Colonel General Tate was. And uh, so there was this sort of um, discussion between both sides. The French must have known, Colonel Tate must have known, well, he's not going anywhere. He's already hem hemmed in. And he thought, of course, that there was a much bigger force surrounding him. So eventually the, the French officers arrived where, at the place called the Royal Oak in Fishguard, which is a pub still there today. And that's where uh, Lord Corder had set up his headquarters. And um, that's ultimately where the French surrendered on the 24th of February, 1797. Now, but what happened? There was a bit of a scene on the beach where the French, I think, decided once and for all that they, uh, they'd really just better surrender unconditionally instead of hanging out for a conditional surrender. Well, apparently their decision was influenced by something that they'd seen because, of course, local people were curious as to what the French were going to do. So many, many people came down to actually see what was going to happen. And it is said that many of these uh, onlookers were wearing traditional women were wearing traditional costume of red shawls and the sort of black uh, shako hats sort of quite conical hats now from a distance they looked like british or uh, a british regiment of the line you know regular soldiers and so on, on seeing that from a distance it said that that influenced that, that sort of removed any doubts the french had that unconditional surrender was really their only option I mean, you would have thought that they would have should have reached that conclusion already, given that the the situation that they were in. But so what? Looked up on the cliffs. There's all these women who kind of look like redcoats from the distance, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, I think we'd better give up here." Now the story goes, Simon, that this was the brainchild of Jemima Nicholas, and that this was actually her idea to line everybody up in their traditional clothing. Is that fact or fantasy? Well. There's two versions. One is that Jemima Nicholas organised it, and the other is that it might have been Lord Corder. So you can sort of take your pick. I'm not sure whether we'll ever really know, but there's no doubt that the the the, the heroine of this whole story was indeed Jemima Nicholas. We reckon Jemima was born in about 17. Well, she was actually baptised in a local church called Mathry in 1755, and she was either a cobbler somebody who makes and repairs shoes, or she was married to a cobbler. And uh, she emerges from this as a real sort of Amazonian figure, around, apparently rounding up 12 French soldiers just on the point of her pitchfork. Now, if these soldiers had been, you know, formidable, I don't think she could have taken on 12 to 1, but they were probably inebriated, sort of disp dispirited, sort of um, members of Le Légion Noir. So she took... 12 of them prisoners, and um, they were held captive inside the local church overnight until the whole force uh, surrendered. And because she so showed such bravery, she was actually given a pension for life of uh, £50. Pounds. Oh, that wow. doesn't sound much, but yeah. you could almost live on that because a pound a week was, was really, really good. And she collected that pension um, every year up until her death in July 1832. Uh, 
Oh wow! So I mean, do the stories say whether perhaps she was a bit of intim- a bit intimidating, had a bit of a, a way with her mouth, perhaps that went along with the pitchfork? I think she would have been a very, very formidable person, somebody you really wouldn't want to cross, and certainly some somebody you wouldn't want to take on. So Jemima Nicholas is as absolutely, or Jemima Faur, which means great. Jemima the Great is absolutely the the sort of central heroine of this whole story and uh, she's got a, a, a very prominent headstone in uh, St Mary's Church in, in Fishguard and um, we've even got people who um, on civic events actually sort of, uh, sort of dre- p- pretend to be her. There was a lady called, uh, there was a, so Fishguard had an official um, Jemima Nichols actor now, she was originally Yvonne Fox, but Yvonne sadly died in 2010. And so a new Jemima, Jackie Scar, was named in 2013. So there is a <clears throat> there's an act, a local actor who plays the part of Jemima when we have um, big events and reenactments and that sort of thing. And so do you also get people to be the 12 French soldiers and get shoved in the church? <laughs> well, I didn't see in 1997. It was the 200th anniversary, the bicentenary of the Fishguard invasion, and I'm sure there must have been some sort of role play in which she recreated. It was rec- the scene was recreated with these poor twelve miserable French uh, soldiers were literally rounded up. They certainly didn't want to cross her. They would have probably yielded. Uh, they would have surrendered at the first opportunity. Oh, my goodness. Imagine having to, you know, eventually getting back to France and having to tell the story of being, you know, locked in the church by a woman with a pitchfork. Just, uh, you know, in that day and age would have been pretty humiliating, I reckon. So, look, what what happened to then to Andrew Tate and all the troops? Uh, because the ships had gone. So what happened next once they'd surrendered? Well, everybody, the... the, the Captured French soldiers were marched south to Haverford West, which is the county town of of Pembrokeshire. And many of them were put in the local church, which they caused a lot of damage to. And then others were taken to a place in Pembroke. Uh, There's a place called Golden, the Golden Prison. But eventually all of the prisoners, we think, were there were lots of prisoner exchanges um, in this time. So we reckon that within a year, all these prisoners would have probably been repatriated uh, back to back to France. Yeah. Although there's a couple of really interesting uh, postscripts. Uh, whilst the the French were in some of the French were in Pembroke, um, two local women must have fallen for two of the local um, French captives, and they helped them escape. So two of these French managed to escape back to France, and with a with a glorious irony. They did so by capturing Lord Corder's own yacht. They captured, they took his yacht and they managed to get back to France with the two Welsh girls who had actually fallen for the for the French captives. Oh, wow. So that's a really, really unusual sort of um, postscript. There's also another postscript in which um, two local look two local farmers were actually accused of treason because they'd been captured by the French and had spent time with Colonel William Tate. And of course, after the invasion was over and the French were safely under lock and key, these two uh, farmers, uh, surnamed Griffith and John, were put on trial on a charge of high treason for basically colluding with the French. And um, but they were both acquitted. 
uh, they were non-conformists and it, uh, it emerged during the trial that some of the French officers who gave evidence against them had been bribed. So um, these two men were acquitted and uh, then were subsequently released. So this interesting story has got all sorts of um, unusual twists and turns, yeah. that, which makes it such a wonderful, you know, episode of history. Yeah. Um, and Simon, then you mentioned 1997, of course, the 200th anniversary of the invasion. I know that you, uh, a tapestry got put together to tell the story. So tell us about that, that tapestry. Well, the Last Invasion Tapestry is an amazing piece of work. It's 30 metres or 100 feet long. And it was designed by a lady called Elizabeth Cramp. And it basically recreates, you think of the Bayer Tapestry, it's something almost something similar to that. And it recreates all of the events of the last invasion of February 1797, the French landing at Carrigwasted and the sort of um, Jemima with their pitchfork, surrendering on Goodick Sands with the drums beating and the arms all sort of piled up. And it was the work of 77 local people. And it's the same depth as the Bayer Tapestry. And it's the most amazing piece of work. It took, it took well, it started in, um, they started in uh, 1993, I think, and it was uh, officially unveiled to the public on the 22nd of February 1997. And if any of your uh, lis listeners, uh, Suzanne or ever in the UK and are in Pembrokeshire, go to Fishguard Library where you can actually see the last invasion tapestry. And it really is an amazing, an amazing sort of, um, well, it's a, an amazing work of art. It's worth, well, well worth seeing. I do love that you have the Bayer Tapestry celebrating the successful French invasion. And then you've got... Uh, Absolutely. This. The irony is, yes. is, is really there, isn't it? <laughs> uh, now, what other sites are there on the uh, the tourist map related to the invasion if people are uh, are in the area? Well, Fishguard Fort is, is really interesting. Um, although it sort of frightened away one of the French ships, it, it is... It's, it's from it's one of the only structures from this sort of era. We reckon it was built between 1779 and 1781 at the time of the American Revolutionary War to 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 defend Fishguard from American privateers. So that's worth seeing as well. And there's all sorts of various um, local artifacts that are probably in people's houses. Um, apparently, there's a, a farm called Brest Garn in near Penkaya which was the scene of the action. And I've seen old photographs of this long case. Just think of a grandfather clock. And in the, it's got a bullet hole right in it because apparently it was fired at by a French soldier because he thought somebody was hiding in the clock. It was, oh. it was, the, it was just the movement yeah. of the clock, but he thought he misinterpreted and thought that was like somebody hiding in the clock. So he fired his, his gun at the clock. And even a hundred years later, I've seen photographs of this clock and it's still got the bullet hole. Oh, wow. So I reckon, I reckon there's quite a few, um, there's quite a few sort of um, mementos, artifacts and souvenirs of the, of the, the last invasion, probably in, in people's houses, you know, heirlooms and, and antiques and artifacts that have been handed down from generation to generation. Now, I, I, I have read that in 2019, a hat that uh, was said to have belonged to Jemima Nichols was sold by one of her brother's descendants at a charity auction for £5,000 and that the buyer was a distant relative who lived in Australia. So that we've got a connection too. Absolutely. True. I did yeah. see that. That attracted a lot of publicity um, 
this was just before COVID, yeah, in 2019. Um, so it's a hat purporting to have been Jemima's. I'm, I'm not sure, but it, it was valued, or the estimate at auction was £5,000. So, you know, that, that price would have reflected its importance to local history and, in a, and one of the very few associations with such a, a legendary figure like Jemima herself. Yeah, wow. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining us on Nightlife tonight to, to tell us the story of the Fishguard invasion and uh, all about the role of Jemima the Great as well. Well, can I say thank you for uh, asking me to talk to you. Uh, Prahanda is good afternoon, and that's our time in Wales. And Noswitha is good evening. And I wish you and your uh, listeners, um, you know, a, a very, very good evening. Oh, Simon, thank you so much. Uh, that is Dr Simon Hancock, Chair of the Pembrokeshire Historical Association. And there, if you ever are in the Fishguard area and that story piqued your interest, certainly go away by the sounds of it. Have a look at that tapestry. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.